I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week, a peek inside the podcast industry with a final season of one of my favorite podcasts, Startup from Gimlet. Then we'll review Motive, a podcast from WBEZ Chicago that looks at a wrongful conviction story unlike any we've talked about before. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, podcaster I married, and victim of bad graphic design, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Rebecca, let's do lunch. I'll have my people call your people. <laughs> we'll work something out. <laughs> what do you want? Give me your gravy recipe? <laughs> <laughs> also with us is Would journalist... Would you be open to that conversation? <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and our favorite certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Um, I was just listening to the new NHPR podcast about witches. Ooh. Apparently, I would have been classified as a witch <laughs> because of all the cats at my house, so I'm lucky I live now. What do you mean would have been? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I more more horrible things would have happened to me at that period, apparently. <laughs> I will say what Laura's talking about is a new show that launched today as we tape this called Second Greatest Show on Earth. It's about weird, quirky things about New Hampshire, and the new uh, The Witches series is delightful. I'd recommend that people check it out. The question that that team sought to answer is, who are the real witches of New Hampshire? Laura and I both know the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently it's me, because I have cats. (laughs) And finally with us is our resident cynic, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our favorite Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Toby, it's my second time podcasting with you this week. This is very exciting. Yeah, it's nuts. It's twice in like just over 24 hours. What are you talking about? Toby was on Undisclosed Addendum this week. Oh. It was very exciting. It was just me, him, and Rabia. Mm. It was very intimate. Did Rabia get to yell at you for all the times that... She, she was so mean to me. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> hey, ladies, got to stick together. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, it was fun. It was fun. Like, I don't know if I've talked about a show with the person who created the show right there. Yeah. So that was that was a little bit different. Although, you know, Robbie is, it's not like I was critiquing anything, but I was, you know, sort of putting forward my concerns about 
like whether or not the guy was guilty. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like how clearly innocent is this guy who they're looking at? And and Robbie just like takes it all in strides. Like, well, there's more stuff to come, and you know, sort of acknowledges where you know at this point in the thing, like that's a that's kind of a legitimate understanding of the case so far. So. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was like to do it. You know, you know, Alex Bloomberg is going to be listening to this podcast. So, <laughs> so. no, he's not. Sure. So just keep that in mind. No, he's not. Okay. There are fans of this podcast who work at Gimlet. Yeah. And I know that for reasons I can't disclose. <laughs> but Alex disclose. Bloomberg, I don't think is one of them. I mean, I oh. love. I'm a huge fan of his. Oh, he's going to definitely now that you know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> His ears are burning. Rabia, yes. <laughs> but, you know, what is funny about Rabia is that she, by the way, she does listen to this podcast. And I should mention, she looked up your book cover after we talked yeah. about it last week. <laughs> We're going to play the piece of the tape of her reacting to that on the after show. Okay. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> um, but to be fair, Rabia, it's like the, this impression that she's this like intractable person is 100% not true. Mm-hmm. Because even when reasonable people who don't know anything beyond cereal say to her, like, oh, I think Anand might be guilty, she'll be like, yeah, I would think of that, too, if I only listened to cereal. Yeah. Like, she's a very reasonable person. And, um, yeah, but Toby, you were great on Undisclosed. Thank you for doing it. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's totally fun. All right. Well, speaking of our Patreon, uh, we've got a bunch of stuff on Patreon this week. So if you've never joined, if you've never been tempted to join, perhaps this will entice you. There is a brand new Leave It to Bricker episode that just dropped. Lara, what's that about? It is about trying to use my detective skills to find out what is in the chili at the Chili Fest. That's right. <laughs> Suck it, Gimlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> High stakes. Yeah. Fuck you, Spotify. Right. And we wonder why they haven't acquired us. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, after the moose meat incident a few years ago, I wasn't invited back. So this year, I had to take on a different role. <laughs> That's right. And of course, we have a brand new episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, which is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you and I are going to be taping a new Mary with podcast next week and to accompany this show. That's right, because we make four freaking podcasts for our Patreon. On today's Crime Writers on After Show, yes, we will be talking about some of the fan reaction to Kevin's book cover that we discussed last week. (laughs) Uh, Plus, we're going to be, Kevin and I, reviewing or talking about casually and reviewing El Camino, the Breaking Bad film on Netflix because Kevin and I are Breaking Bad fans and we watched it. Toby and Laura, we didn't want to subject them to like six years of television just they so they could talk about yeah. one thing. <laughs> so if you liked, uh, if you watched El Camino and you have thoughts, check out our after show this week. And if you haven't joined our Patreon yet, what the heck are you doing? For goodness sakes, it's time. Go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Was that a real good plug, Kevin? It was. Is it time for the podcast? Yeah. Alex Boomberg would be so impressed because <laughs> he's listening right now. <laughs> Taking notes. You know who listened last week? Our new friend, Jamie Bartlett. That's right. Yeah, he shed some light on the music. Because he did. And I think Choice. I think Jen, the uh, the Scottish woman, did too. That's right. Yeah. So it was a subliminal message to Dr. Ruja. That's right. <laughs> she knows what I it means. I listened to the new episode today. <laughs> I heard the part where they say Ruja, mm, which totally yeah. I would not have noticed if, if he hadn't uh, mentioned well, it. Well... If you're Dr. Ruja, you might have heard it. That's right. Toby. Well, if she's the kind of person who has a Google <laughs> alert on her like own name, you know, she probably listened to our podcast, too. Yes. What yeah. they're referring to is our review last week of The Missing Crypto Queen. And the host of that podcast has interacted with us on Twitter and followed us and followed me. And we've talked about some of our critique. And I think they were very happy that we gave it our four thumbs up. It's so wonderful when people who like we review actually listen to the show. 
Except when yeah. we pan their podcast, then it's yeah. awkward sometimes. Who, who's more likely listening this week, Jamie or Alex Bloomberg? <laughs> Alex Bloomberg is very busy counting his Spotify money, Kevin. I know. <laughs> but he has, to, he has to listen to something while he's not at the feeling factory. <laughs> All right. Let's review that podcast, shall we? In the original season of Gimlet's Startup, host Alex Bloomberg took listeners inside the struggles of starting his own podcast company, Gimlet, which, by the way, was originally supposed to be called the American Podcasting Company. That was his original name. <laughs> After several seasons featuring his business and other businesses, Startup focuses again on Gimlet for its final season of just three episodes and its big dollar acquisition by Spotify. When the new season opens, we learn that Gimlet, though, is in financial trouble. It's spring of 2018 and things at Gimlet, the company I co-founded a few years earlier, are not going well. We're missing important targets. How much, what's, it, what, what's the sell-through rate so far? 10%, 15%. Why is that, that that's, God, that's bad. Resentment builds between Alex and other co-founder Matt Lieber as each struggle with stresses involved in keeping the operation going. My least generous thought was that like, Alex is a child who doesn't want to grow up and just wants to like make art projects and doesn't, care to understand the responsibility of building and running a company. Part documentary, part confessional, Startup's series finale provides an insider's look at the company that made Habitat, Crime Town, Homecoming, Reply All, and many, many more shows. It leaves listeners to wonder whether a nine-figure paycheck can mend this friendship and also gives us a unique look inside an industry that is very close to my heart. We will be talking about plot points from the final episodes of Startup, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin. Yes. Startup is not exactly in our regular review wheelhouse. Right. Confession. I know a whole lot about what I know about making podcasts from listening to season one of Startup back in 2014. Is this your first time ever listening to Startup? Yes, I mean, I've listened to Reply All, um, which is also a Gimlet product. And of course, all the other things that we've listened to, Habitat and Conviction and Crime Town and all, you know, all the rest. But no, I have not listened to Startup. And I didn't watch Alex Inc. No, nobody no won't watch that. Well, that's why it isn't on TV anymore. <laughs> but I, I will say, Startup, the first couple of seasons of Startup about Gimlet, to me, are some of the most compelling podcasts basically ever made. Uh-huh. What you're hearing in these episodes, which I know you enjoyed because you already told me, tip your hand. Imagine pre-success Alex Bloomberg, who just left a plum job at This American Life, literally starting from scratch with no company name, with no money in the bank, with nothing. Mm-hmm. We hear him meeting his co-founder, Matt Lieber, and just being like, so how do you start a company? Like that is what Startup is about. It's incredible. Wow. Lara and Toby, you guys were not Startup fans either prior to this, right? Yeah, I I actually hadn't listened to it. So this was, you know, my first introduction. And I was just right away sort of struck by how transparent and forthcoming they were about themselves and the company and everything that was going on. You know, I I think because this came out before we started, right? Yes. Yeah. So I think my memory is that the two podcasts that I had listened to a little bit of before I got the call from you guys were Startup and Serial. Mm. I was like, I should check out podcasts. These seem like the two that people are raving about the most. Yeah. I I think, too, this podcast really started my interest in, like, following the industry, which is something we do on this show. Mm -hmm. Probably 
sort of my inspiration for like developments in the industry, things that are happening, scandals in the industry. A lot of it comes from that Alex Bloomberg, really, former This American Life producer, sort of blew it open and showed us how the sausage was made. And a lot of what we do on this show for me was very inspired by that because early episodes of Startup, they talked about like the conflicts that the journalists who made shows who came from like public radio stations felt about reading ads. Like they had Mm. meetings about it. They taped. They had like a lot of that insidery baseball stuff that the same kinds of questions we grapple with. And Kevin, one of the big questions that Startup grapples with in its early episodes and in this season, but it comes to a climax with these couple of episodes is... The relationships, not only between Alex and his wife, Nazanin, which is a huge part of the heart of this whole thing, but his relationship with his co-founder, Matt Lieber. What was your least generous thought about Alex? <laughs> um, I don't know if I want to say. I, I, I don't know if I have one <laughs> or if I want to say. Like my, my least generous thought was that like, Alex is a child who doesn't want to grow up and just wants to like make art projects and doesn't care to understand the responsibility of building and running a company that has creativity at the center of it, but has a lot of other stuff around it that makes it all work. Kevin, Matt is the numbers guy. Alex is the artist. Yeah. What do you think about this relationship? Well, I think it's, it's obviously necessary because you really can't have one without the other. And all you know, people with great ideas need, I think, a business person behind them to make it work. But then you have to decide who really is in charge, as as we see. And you know, it's pretty even handed. They both have a point about you know what is our brand, what are we making, what is the quality of that product, and then what are we doing to make sure we can pay everybody. Right. They also have some conflict about how the company should be and. Yeah. What should be driving the decisions? So when, when someone at a meeting says, like, I don't feel like that's the right thing, or I don't feel like that's um, that we can make a good show under those constraints, like, what's the first thought that goes through your mind when you hear someone say that? Um, <laughs> the first thought is, like, this is a fucking business, not a feelings factory. Laura, what do you think about this conflict between these two guys? I mean, it's it's very common when you think about it that, you know, if you think of any sort of enterprise you're in, if you're a creative person, it's always hard to have the realist person balancing you out. If you're like, I want to do the best thing I can do. I want to have all the materials that I need. I want to have the time to do what I want to do and the staffing. And and so I think, you know, it's it's something that a lot of people can relate to if they listen to this, because I think you either sort of fall into one camp or the other. I think it's rare that, you know, you're able to be that creative person who also can be that realistic when you have sort of lofty ideas of of, of what you want to do. And um, so I, I think it was very relatable. And I would definitely fall on the creative side because I do not like to think about the budget. <laughs> Toby, would you allow me to tape a difficult <laughs> conversation between the two of us as we grappled with a creative or business disagreement? We don't have difficult conversations. About <laughs> <laughs> we just do it on Slack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just feel. Yeah, you'd have to have Laura doing a dramatic reading of our conversation. <laughs> no, I think it's you know I, I think it is it's good. Like and I, and I kind of feel on the occasions when I talk to people about like the actual sort of 
what it's like to make a podcast and, and the good and the bad or whatever. Not that there's a whole lot of bad, but being kind of honest about how all that stuff works, because I think there's a tendency to kind of make it more mysterious or better than it actually is. Uh, sometimes when you're trying to sort of describe the the sausage making or whatever. So I think being able to kind of hear these honest conversations and I am kind of a sucker for the like things that are sort of about the creative process mm. um, for this kind of thing. Part of the creative process is how do you fit it within the business right. model? In addition to, you know, how well it works for the podcast and for the listeners, you know, I think sort of, you know, in keeping with all that is probably also good for the business side of things because it's a, such a popular podcast that is also bringing in the money. So I think there's like sort of the in literature as in life type of thing going on there. You know, the, like the business professors will, you know, always point to the buggy whip maker and, you know, you have to be prepared for the thing that changes your industry, mm. that existential threat. I was really impressed with their uh, insight into how the podcasting world is changing yep. away from the very high production value, high cost, labor intensive podcast miniseries mm -hmm. to the cheaper made, more profitable, weekly, personality driven podcast. I can't believe you're surprised by that, considering we do the latter. I know we do the latter. No. <laughs> and it's been stable and fine. But the realization <laughs> for, for these very important people who've raised yeah. millions of dollars who cut their teeth in in public radio. Yes, long form storytelling. Long form public radio. High investment. Right, that is financed in a different way to realize that there are limitations to that audience. Yes. And to me, it's inexcusable that they couldn't sell this. Well- That they're, I, I don't see how that is possible. To be fair, I've been on the other side of that, yeah. you know, at a place that is making these long form reported things that are just standalone series. The limitation to selling it is you legitimately can't tell the advertiser how many people are going to listen to it because you don't know. That's what's hard about it. It's not dissimilar to, you know, a TV show or whatever. Like, you know, the show that airs at 10 p.m. that's going to replace Grey's Anatomy or whatever is going to draw X many viewers. Right. But whatever. It's very, right, well, let's very. Let's not get too deep in the weeds for other people. But I just the idea that there was no way that there are ways, obviously. Yes. You know. Yes. But it, it is an interesting look. You can't and, have a 10 percent sell through rate. But there's another thing, too, about it that is so fascinating to me and so so I'm a huge fan of Alex Bloomberg the reason why is because he puts his childlike naivete out there he's very very smart he's probably the best at what he does in terms of like creating these kinds mm -hmm. of stories but he's also like so childlike and I've seen this firsthand whenever with other producers at other like public radio stations and stuff they do think it makes takes 12 people in two years to make 10 episodes of something and I work at a place that has made very high quality award winning things. And I can tell you, Kevin, it actually doesn't take that. That's just how they were trained. And that's what he thinks it takes. Yeah. And and just to wrap up my thought about the two different kinds of programming, podcasting programming, we need that high, uh, 100%. high quality podcast, even if it's only going to be 10 episodes and it takes two years to make. That's what we talk about. Exactly. You know, we're not talking about the weekly things nope. that- are done down and dirty and are great, but you know there's definitely a place for that and a need for that kind of stuff. On your radio, today you can turn to a commercial radio station that plays music, 
pretty cheap for them. Totally. Or a news station that has to pay a whole lot of reporters to go and cover City Hall or a public radio station that is putting together all this work laboring to get you this five-minute piece. Um, There's places for all of those things. I was, in some ways, personally satisfied, even though it was difficult and like cringy listening, because it's always cringy listening to people have conflict, that the show The Habitat was at the center of this conflict (laughs) between Alex and Matt coming to a head. When we greenlit the project, we estimated it would take a year of production time. But then that year stretched towards two, and as the Habitat took longer to make, the costs associated with it, like salaries and other costs of production, they grew beyond what we'd projected. We started to realize the show was going to lose money. And to Matt, standing back and looking at this situation just didn't make sense. He was all for ambitious content, but only if we could afford it. Plus, I'm the CEO of Gimlet. It felt crazy to him that I was spending hours and hours each week deep in the weeds on a project that wasn't going to help us out of our financial situation. Toby, what are your thoughts about that, about the fact that this show, a show that, by the way, we kind of famously panned on our show, uh, I believe that... Not we. Well, I... I was a thumbs up. You were a thumbs up. I was on vacation. I wasn't You were out. So, Toby, what were your thoughts about hearing that the show The Habitat did lead to this sort of, like, peak of conflict between Alex and Matt? Yeah, so I, I actually came away from this with a different feeling about that podcast, which is that I think they probably gave those guys these recorders and then ended up with hundreds of hours of just sheer boredom and spent two years trying to figure out how to get anything out of it. Yep. Um, (laughs) It does. I don't know. There's a bunch of things that surprised me about it just because I just kind of thought of Gimlet as being, you know, this sort of functioning production company and that one show like that wouldn't be so existentially fraught, you know, as far as their as the company went. I, I couldn't believe the, as Kevin was saying before, I couldn't believe the problem they're having selling ads. Yeah. Like, that's just bizarre. The whole thing just seems like kind of a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it was overworked. <laughs> Although they said it got to like number one or something. It was. It was number one for a long time and had millions. Of, but we actually said in our review that it sounded like like it was overworked. They were doing too much with like not a lot. I actually think that Alex's sensibility of like if you just work on it enough, it becomes art. Like that's a disadvantage for a show like The Habitat. I will stand by that. I think it's okay to make something that's less with what you have, especially yeah. when it doesn't make money. <laughs> and I think like you could even like I don't know how well they knew those guys, but like sort of in in hindsight, like maybe the whole thing is, you know, you can put people in this like really novel situation, but what happens there is still kind of banal. You know, mm. it's not it's not like suddenly weird stuff starts happening. It's just like these people are exactly the way they are, except they're living in this weird little place right. and they get on each other's nerves a little bit more. Right. And somebody let somebody bring a guitar, which was like the worst mistake ever. <laughs> and wasn't it like an oboe or something? <laughs> oh, it was a didgeridoo. A didgeridoo? <laughs> didgeridoo. Do not bring instruments into this environment. It's like moving into your college dorm and the guy's got bongos. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, guess, shit. As our son like, said, get like, in touch with housing I'm not going right to be away. that guy. Yeah. So, Lara, uh, we get to the point in the podcast where, you know, the p- folks at Spotify ask to meet with the folks at Gimlet because they want to learn more about yep. the podcast industry. And as somebody who works in podcasting, I can tell you, not on the scale of Spotify, 
I probably get, I don't know, between five and 10 emails a week from somebody wanting to, quote, pick my brain about podcasting or something. That is a common thing because a new yeah. it's a new thing. Relatively, people want to you know learn about it. But this rapidly turns into something more when Matt and Alex get a tip that one of their board members knows a banker who works, yeah. at Sputin, works with Spotify and it's going to be something more. I just want to play that tape. So, uh, you know, whatever the meeting ends. And they're like, thanks for coming in. And I'm like, yeah, good to see you guys. And they start getting up from the table. And I'm like, should I sit? I stay sitting at the table? But they all start getting up and leaving. So I'm like, okay, I'll get up and leave. And I'm like hovering outside the door. Because <laughs> <clears throat> somebody's supposed to come and pull you aside. Yeah, like, like, that was what Pat was said was yeah. going to happen. And I just kind of like lingered there <laughs> being like, where's the person pulling me aside? <laughs> and I'm like, he's like, do you need something? I'm like... Uh, no, no, thanks. See ya. And then I left. <laughs> so nobody came up. No. So there was no, there was no pull aside. What did you think of this whole way this went down? Matt goes and has the meeting, but then ultimately Spotify invites them to meet for real, like on Thanksgiving. What did you think of how all this played out? I, I don't know. That was a little bit arrogant, quite honestly. Um, like, I get it. They're like huge. They can do whatever they like. But they don't have Thanksgiving in Europe, Lara. Just want to point that out to you. That's not a thing other places. But they have gravy. Common courtesy. <laughs> he had to make his damn gravy. Like, I, for one, want to know the recipe. I think it really sort of illustrated when you listen to that, the scope of these type of business deals where things like, holidays and family time and personal time don't really matter when someone like Spotify wants to buy your company. Also, apparently, can you imagine that's the most expensive time of the year to fly, just like finding last minute tickets in and out? It almost seemed like sort of like a whim at that point, because it's like they go on to these other meetings where they thought it was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, like, Friday afternoon, five o'clock, it's now or never. Laura, I totally disagree with you. I think if you want to sell your company to fucking Spotify... And like, it could be a billion. I think that you like, you fuck jump. Thanksgiving, do Thanksgiving <laughs> well, on yeah, Saturday. Yeah. Fuck that. No, I get that part. But I'm just saying it sort of like drives home like it's a different it's a different world where yeah. it's like things like that are important to you, you know, in your personal life don't don't matter. If somebody like that, it's like, uh, you know, it's just a different perspective. I do think the best two quotes from the entire first two episodes of this whole thing were the Feelings Factory quote. Yeah. And when that lady from Spotify says this. Man, you're the president of a venture-backed startup and your acknowledged ideal buyer CEO wants to meet with you. Uh-huh. And and can't, can't that be a little more important than the gravy? <laughs> Kevin, you and I are small potatoes. And we've been approached by people who want to give us like $150, not people who want to give us a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> But would you or would you not just move Thanksgiving to a different day to go meet with Spotify in Stockholm? I, yeah, I think anyone would. They not should. Matt. Not Matt. <laughs> See, I feel like, Matt, you know. Matt and Laura are going to watch the game. I love you Matt. Know, I got to say, I fucking love Matt. I mean, I know, like, certainly Alex was a business reporter for a long time. And, of course, Matt's sort of the business guy. I just feel like, in some ways, they weren't preparing for what every business should be preparing for, which is their ultimate Client, right? Their ultimate customer, which is the customer to whom you sell your business to when you're done. Mm. And for businesses that don't think that way, you know, they deal with their customers coming in another store every day, whatever it is. But in the end, they have one customer, and it's the one that they're gonna when it's time to cash in. 
Now, it might be like, I'm going to die, and I'm just going to give it to my kids, or it doesn't matter. You don't prepare for that. But here they are. They're in a startup, you know? That's what it, I mean, that's the goddamn name of the podcast. It just felt like, and this just maybe the way the podcast was, you know, looking back in retrospect, but they weren't thinking about all this time who the ultimate buyer of Gimlet is. You know, you can treat it like when you're selling a car, a used car, you're just hoping that it doesn't break down before the check cashes, or like when you're selling your house, where you've made it as good as possible with the hopes of getting more money for it. It just didn't feel like there were, that basic business sense wasn't there. Well, that's always been Matt's concern with Alex, even yeah. from the old episodes of Startup. This is a passion project for Alex. He mm-hmm. left like one of the best jobs in public radio. Mm-hmm. You know, Planet Money and This American Life to make this company. The whole first season is basically him and his wife in their kitchen, like trying to figure out how they're going to pay for shit because mm-hmm. he's starting this business. And it can, it's painful to think of the idea of like giving it up. I mean, they're still there, obviously, but yeah. like having somebody else own it and control it. I thought those Spotify meeting conversations were very interesting. And I actually thought. The CEO of Spotify, Daniel Eck, was a very interesting guy. And the way that he talked about framing his questions to them in those conversations was interesting. Toby, what did you think of this whole Spotify interaction and Daniel Eck's interview? I thought that was really interesting and uh, I think kind of unusual because I think a lot of these CEOs like to play it a little closer to the vest with public. Like it's hard to imagine like Jamie Diamond or somebody like being that open about their thought process on things. Like I didn't have any sense about how somebody who's a CEO of a company that's that big and has all this money, like when you're talking with somebody who's a company you're thinking about buying, like what is your approach? So when you're asking questions, what kind of answers are you looking for? For me, I thought was about the most interesting part of the like a very nonstop sort of fascinating two episodes, which is kind of getting his thought process a little bit about how he was evaluating this company and he wanted to buy and these people who he was thinking about working with and what he was looking for. Yeah. Like how would you, what would you do if I gave you a billion dollars? Well, this is interesting. Yeah. Because as I'm listening, again, I, you know, I mean, we know in the end they get uh, acquired, but as they're they're talking about it, it's like, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. My last question and it's like, I'm thinking, he's going to th- ask him for a dollar figure. Or he's going to throw a dollar figure out. And I'm like thinking like, oh, I wonder what they would say. Yeah, like, have they thought about if they offer $100 million? I'm sure Matt Lieber has. You know, if they, do they have a, you know, a, a figure in mind? And I'm listening to it. And I'm, my eyes, I remember, my eyes actually scrunched up because I was thinking, hmm, I wonder what, what the dollar figure would be. And then when he says a billion dollars... My mouth literally dropped open. Now, he wasn't saying, I'm going to give you a billion dollars. He's saying, what would you but do? But he's thinking that big. Right. And yeah. I'm like, whoa. And because in the end- Think big. Yeah. Well, they've decided to invest $500 million in podcast programming of right. different kinds. How pissed is Parcast with their deal after listening to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard in different contexts, which is, you know, you've got to think on the right scale. This, this is more in sort of fundraising or whatever, but like- why are you coming to me with this ask when you should be asking for five times as much to do right. like a real project? And I thought it was interesting that his reaction to their answer, which was basically, we couldn't really handle that right now, is like, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Because if you said that you did, 
My question is, why haven't you? Exactly. You know, that to me is not an intuitive thing to look at. So that's why I thought it was kind of an interesting little insight into how he thought. Well, I do want to just say one thing for transparency for audience's sake. I did ask for a preview episode of the final episode of this season. I'm so of mad it's not here. We don't have it. It literally drops the day after we're recording. Oh. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. And this might sound super dopey when this episode drops on Monday of our review, but I. Spoiler alert, they make a shit ton of money. Also, spoiler alert. I don't know if they're going to address it. I am hoping, beyond hope, that they do. Right what happened after to this, show? no. Right okay. after this acquisition announcement, there was a huge, huge thing that happened at Gimlet, where the employees there did a push to unionize. Ah. There were actually a lot of problems at Gimlet, organizational problems, even after this was announced. The unionization story was one I followed very closely. The company did ultimately have to accept the union. But some of the conflict we hear on this couple episodes of Startup and on earlier episodes of Startup that you hear earlier in the seasons are reflected in the demand for unionization. And a lot of it has to do, I think, with this conflict between Alex and his promises and his philosophy to his company, where all these people can walk around saying, I feel like it should be this, and they feel like they should be heard and so forth, versus the business people saying like, yeah, that's just not how you run a company, guys. Like, you have to make money. And I think that's where a lot of this unionization stuff boiled up from. I am really hoping beyond hope it's addressed in the third episode, but we don't know. So it's going to sound very dated by the time this drops. With that being said, let's do what we do. Let's go around the horn. Let our listeners know, should they listen to this very insidery, inside the podcast industry, final season of Startup about the acquisition of Gimlet by Spotify? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Will our listeners like this? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Absolutely. Um, especially because they took a trademark Rebecca Lavoie uh, statement comparison uh, during this podcast, calling this the HBO, the podcast sphere, which is something you've said a lot. But it's it's the, because of that, you know, we have talked about Gimlet and reviewed a lot of Gimlet podcasts on our show. I think this is a really interesting window into a successful company and, and shows the reality of a company like that. What do you think, Toby? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this final season of Startup from Gimlet? Uh, thumbs up. It's, it's, you know, it's really good in all in all ways, I think. I mean, they, they really know how to put together a good podcast. You know, it's just going to be three episodes. It's pretty modest. But I, I just found like every minute of it was sort of rewarding and interesting. Yeah, I'm also a big thumbs up. One of my favorite things that Alex Bloomberg, who's like kind of famous for wanting to have his hands on everything, he does know when to let other people take over the the mics, let producers go and ask the questions and get the difficult tape that he would not be able to get. Yep. That is the magic behind every minute of every season of Startup I've ever listened to. I have long loved this podcast. I have not listened to the last couple of seasons because, frankly, the stories for me have never been as compelling as the story of Gimlet itself, which I have been fascinated with. Knowing people who work there, knowing people who formerly work there, loving the work that they do, also having some issues with the work that they do. This company is very close to my heart as a person in public radio and podcasting. Huge thumbs up for me for startup, but also because, like Toby said, it's just a really fucking good podcast. What about you, Kevin? I am a thumbs up. I think it's a great look at the inside of a business here that obviously we care a lot about. And I think our listeners are really into podcasting. And so I think that they would like that 
sort of look behind the curtain. Um, in the end, it's not really about the acquisition, although all this stuff is really interesting. It really is about the emotional connection between Alex and Matt, and the question is, will they stay friends? And will $200 million save a friendship? Mm. And I think that, and Alex, I know you're listening. So please <laughs> tweet at us and let us know that you guys are okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a. Uh, Give us that gravy recipe. It's a great warts and all look at uh, a very important company in our industry. But again, I just can't believe they were never able to really get any ads. Moving on. The Chicago Sun-Times and WBEZ Chicago have teamed up for the podcast Motive. The series tells the story of the case of a teen who was exonerated for a murder he didn't commit, only to wind up in jail again after blowing through his legal settlement and shooting someone in the legs. Don't get no fault. Top down. In the hood, bitch. Thaddeus whips out a big silver handgun and points it at the camera. A black assault rifle is propped at his friend's feet. The car starts to roll as Ave Maria blares from the speakers. And this is the music we listen to when we pull rose. Host Frank Main tells us that even though 13-year-old T.J. Jimenez wasn't at the honey-baked ham, witnesses fingered him for the shooting of Eric Morrow. But having spent half his life behind bars before his release, T.J. falls back with his old gang, much to the dismay of his mother, Vicky. Inmate Thaddeus Jimenez, number K51114, has been released from the custody of Illinois Department of Correction. I've heard so many stories, you know, before. Oh, he'll be coming, he'll be coming, blah, blah, blah. And then you get up here and then all of a sudden, pfft. But this wasn't one of those false alarms. He's come home tonight. <laughs> With its making a murderer theme, Motive is a cautionary tale about the system failing the innocent and what happens when redemption is squandered. We are going to be talking about plot points from the first few episodes of Motive. So to stay spoiler free, go to the time code listed in our show notes. Now, Kevin. Yeah. The podcast opens with a really interesting scene. The recording of Ave Maria uh, playing. I got to tell you. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, the first thing is Ave Maria and I'm thinking, what the fuck pretentious thing is this? Like it's, it's like it's going to be oh, we're going to be high end. Like no WBZ, no, no. And I was so relieved to find out that it actually was relevant to the story. Mm. That uh, the guy was driving around in his car playing, okay, Ave Maria. When he randomly shoots a guy in the legs for no goddamn reason. Hmm. This video is infamous. By the end of it, Thaddeus Jimenez shoots somebody on camera. It's that shooting that put Thaddeus in the federal jail across from Maria's apartment. Toby, what did you think of that scene, the way to open the podcast with that sort of Ave Maria shooting video scene? I felt like uh, TJ might have just seen Apocalypse Now for the first time and was trying <laughs> to recreate <laughs> that on the streets of Chicago. It's good. As, as a matter of fact, I think it, it, it may be the high point of the whole podcast. <laughs> but it definitely, it, it grabbed you because it, it is. It's, it's sort of unusual. It, it does kind of like draw you into the story. It's like, what, what the hell's going on? I don't know. I think the high point of the podcast for me was the young journalist, Maria Cordona, oh, yeah. who was the intern or the college student at the time, who saw something pretty incredible on a rooftop across from a prison. Laura Bricker, do you want to tell us about that? You guys, I don't know if you remember, we went to Chicago and I went on the architectural boat tour. 
Yeah. That's the prison I saw on my boat tour. (laughs) 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 And I did not see any naked dancing ladies. I'm really feeling like I missed the full experience. But Oh, damn. um, I know. All I heard was the story about the guys who escaped by like tying their bed sheets together and escaped from the place. So I thought that was really interesting. You know, I've heard a lot of different stories about different ways that people in jail find clever, unique ways to satisfy themselves in that way while they're incarcerated. This was the first. I I had not heard of people dancing on the roof giving a strip show like that. So that was really interesting. But what was more interesting about that is that that was what gave that young reporter all of a sudden, this in to get the interview, like, uh, I heard you talk to my girlfriend, you know, right. you know, the fact that I don't know how much it was addressed in the podcast, but I did find an article online about it, that they're not able to shut this down. It was, mm. it was very interesting as well. Toby, there is a stated sort of uh, mission statement story promise of this podcast. It's almost like a cruel sociological experiment. What do you do if you take a 13 year old who's living on the streets, you know, making bad decisions and put him in maximum security prison and then release him in his 30s and give him a bunch of money? And in the first episode, we get this really interesting setup where TJ has basically blown through all of that money buying cars and, you know, guns and starting his own sort of like private army to wage gang warfare in the streets of Chicago and drive around and playing opera and shooting people. I'm not sure that the podcast is fulfilling the promise set up in that first episode. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think so at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it kind of answers it in the first episode to an extent. And then from then on, it's it's pretty conventional. Sort of a story of a kid who joined a gang and got unlucky, I guess. So I find this podcast kind of frustrating in that I think, you know, it had a good idea, which it didn't follow up on. The reporting's perfectly good, but it's just, it it's just doesn't seem very inspired. Hmm. It's just not that much fun to listen to. You know, in the first episode's pretty good, and, and you're, you're hoping that it's going to kind of continue in that vein, and then it, it just doesn't. It becomes like a completely different story. It's poignant in some ways, and it's interesting in some ways, but it's not particularly surprising in the way the first episode is. Hmm. I agree that they're not going, you know, or they have not yet addressed that question that they've posed, but I'm just going to put an asterisk next to it because it's not done yet, and there's still more episodes to go. They they seem to be kind of going back and doing a, a, a linear timeline after that first episode where they jump back and then are telling TJ's story you know, from the shooting going through and this exoneration. And so I think towards the end, I'm hoping that they get to that. If they don't, it'll be a big disappointment. But is that a good narrative structure if we're waiting this long? So we had the same issues with Serial Season 3. Yeah. At the beginning of the season, they make this promise that this building is going to be, we're going to see all of these stories play mm-hmm. out. And the first episode is very rapid fire, like one quick court case. We introduce all these characters. And then after that, it takes all these like side left turns and right turns into other stories that may or may not be fulfilling. And I, my biggest complaint about the season, even though I think it was good, was that it did not fulfill that promise. And that was a very strong setup, don't you think, Kevin? Yeah, I, I think in this case, they, they might have just overplayed it just a little bit in the beginning, setting up this promise, because I think if they don't and they play it a little more conventionally, then we're not distracted by that. I think very much like about making a murderer, you know, has shared some parallels here. That if, you know, they don't get to, you know, any of the issues around Stephen Avery's acquittal and reintroduction to society 
and the, the problems if they don't get to that till you know episode seven or eight yeah you know you don't have a great story i think the difference is in that making a murderer there's always this question of you know what's going to happen in his trial I mean, there's two questions. It's like, A, is, is he guilty of the second murder? And B, what's going to happen in his trial? Right. And I don't think there's any of that in this. Right, because he's on videotape. Like, we know he shoots people. Right. And then so you're going back to this backstory, and there isn't any feeling of suspense. You're just hearing the story, basically. Mm. And I think the pacing, for me, is way off in that you start kind of fast and weird. And then you have three episodes that seem... It doesn't seem very revelatory to me. It doesn't seem like I've learned stuff that I didn't already kind of know from other stories. Laura, can you expand on that? Because you also sent me a note with the parallels to Making a Murder. I'm curious how you compare these two stories. Yeah, so I wasn't necessarily thinking about it like the suspense in the you know second trial for TJ in terms of the comparison. My comparison, as I was thinking about this, is like, okay, so here you've got two people that Stephen Avery and TJ both end up in jail when they are very young for crimes they're later exonerated for. They get out. They both then get charged again for crimes that Stephen Avery's probably most like, you know, I don't know what happened, but the second time is more likely. And in this case with TJ, obviously, that, that they did it. But my question, I mean, I, I think that the issue I'd like to see sort of fleshed out there a little bit more is how the jail culture changes a person when they go in at that young age so that when they do get out and they are given this opportunity for redemption and a new start, even though they were wrongfully charged to begin with, when they get out and they have the opportunity to change their course, they still end up falling back into that cycle now. So I think that was for me what I was thinking about was like, it is, you know, like the central question was in making a murder that did being in jail like that make them murderers. And in the case of TJ, it's it seems like it did. And I wish there was a little bit more placed on that sort of going back to that initial question of like this sad reality TV show experiment. Um, as I was thinking about like, we'll get this guy out of jail and we'll give him all this money and see what he does. Like, what the fuck? You know, I mean, clearly it didn't work. And clearly he was not realistic if he, you know, they're videotaping themselves. Did you guys watch the video, by the way? Yes. Yeah. I was yeah, like, I did not. what in the world is it just... So anyway, so I think there's like a lot of like, you know, questions that could have been gone into on that angle that they didn't get into. There's one thing about this podcast I just want to call out that I just don't like. Uh, It was one of the actually interviewees who said it, but then the podcast itself depends on it as a narrative thing that we're supposed to lean on as listeners. It's basically uh, Father Kelly, who's the guy who like meets with the kids in the jail. Right describes TJ as being like different and special and, you know, being really articulate and smart and stuff. But the podcast really leans on this idea that he's special because he's smart and articulate as if that's different than like other kids and people who grew up in this community and this neighborhood and then went on to join gangs and stuff, whatever. Like, I guarantee you, most people that you meet in almost any scenario are smart and articulate and are are engaging. And I don't know, I found something really off-putting about that. The fact that that's the frame was a bad frame to me. Like, we should be looking at this because he's smart and articulate and likes Ave Maria. Like, it felt like slightly offensive, bad frame. Am I alone in feeling that way? Uh, No. It's It's a bad look. 
I think it hurts the storytelling too. Agreed. Agreed. Because I, I do think, like, I don't know how much insight you're going to get if that is, you know, the frame that you set up. I agree. Essentially. I completely agree. And, I, and I'm a little bit surprised that this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist either comes up with that or allows that to happen. It seems like such a bad choice. It's basically a way to get, and this is like, I'm sure this was not the intention, but there's something about that framing that's like, I'm mean, just going to say it. Hey, upper class white people, here's why you should care about this guy in this story. Because he's smarter and more articulate than you would imagine. Like, that is not actually why we should care about any story. It's just not. And also, by the way, like, literally just about everybody is smarter and articulate than you might imagine if you actually take the time to talk to them Mm -hmm. and learn their story. So just moving on, Kevin, you were very intrigued by one of the same characters I was intrigued by in the story. Vicky. Vicky. She is awesome. Yeah, TJ's mom. Uh, yeah. I'm not hungry. You're not hungry? Okay. I used to have um, two eggs over medium. Before I started recording, Vicky had asked the server what her name was. Once I finished ordering, Vicky made a point of saying her name. Okay, that sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. She has a good memory, huh? Remember her name? As part of, I did this all my life. I was a server. Were you really? Well, I think she ends up being sort of the emotional center because we don't get TJ in his own words. I I think that the mom, in most cases, is a good substitute, or I should say more a surrogate, for that main character because you can contemplate their story without judgment. If you're looking at maybe a killer or a gang member or a drug dealer or something like that, or someone who's accused of that, you know, you might, you know, look at them in a different light than you would a mom who's in pain, right? Mm. You know, she's sassy. What did you think of the fact that she wouldn't eat when she took her out to the diner? That was kind of standoff. Was that great detail, though? Yeah. She was, she'd been a waitress her like whole life. Right. She talked Thanks, to Shirley. the waitress yeah. who was like giving them coffee. Yeah. As if, you know, like you're like my right. people. But right. she like would not order anything. It was, I thought that right. was fascinating. Like, yeah. Weird, like, and she still like resents the judge saying like, well, where, you know, where was your mom? And she's like, I was working three jobs. Yeah. What do you want? Like if she's not working at home and collecting a government check that she shouldn't be, you look down on her. If she's not there because she's working hard to feed her family, you still look down on her. Right. And can we, I think we would all agree, listening to her parenting style in this podcast, she was like way stricter than any of us are as parents. Yes or no? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I liked her. I like her too. So is anyone surprised that Andrew Hale who defended the city in the lawsuit against TJ, who was suing for all this money after his wrongful conviction. Is anybody surprised that he thinks that the evidence that turned over the conviction is bullshit? That the, uh, nope. That Larry's... No. Nope. That Next was, question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Laura, what do you think of him being leaned on as the like seed of doubt in the story? Literally everybody else, the, the lawyers, the wrongful conviction people, the journalists, everyone's like, no, he didn't do it. But this one person is the voice that they choose, and he's also the lawyer that defended them against the lawsuit. What do you think of that, Laura? You know, they've got to have somebody in there with the alternate 
view. And I have to say, when I was listening to Larry's version of events, which was, well, they they kept after me. So finally, I just said it. And then it wasn't true. But I said it. But now I'm changing my mind. I'm like, okay, sometimes that narrative does come out. And it's just somebody that wants to get a better deal for themselves. Or in this case, you could see it from the perspective of he doesn't want to get his ass kicked anymore. Because the gang members are outside his house now because they knew that he was the one that gave a statement. But you have to look at the totality of the story. If a court ruled in favor of TJ to the point of $25 million, clearly this kid is credible. So you do have to put some doubt in there for the sake of the story. And of course, it comes from that guy. By the way, he had like crazy eyes. Did anybody look at his picture? I did. Uh, I was like, whoa, he looked like kind of frantic looking. So I was like, ah, he looks kind of. He looks like a, he looks like a Hogwarts professor. (laughs) Disheveled. I was like, well, you know, when you're, when you're the city attorney, I mean, life's going to be a little stressful. (laughs) So Toby, one thing this podcast does allows us like a big look at a giant political issue right now, which is the crime bill of the 1990s, which has come up, I feel like on several podcasts that we've talked about in terms of wrongful convictions and over prosecutions. And of course, a candidate for president right now was one of the voices that really got that done. Joe Biden. What do you think of that look for today's politicians looking back on all this rhetoric around super predators and, you know, sealing them off from society, which is literally like what our former first lady then Secretary of State, then candidate for President Hillary Clinton said at the time. What do you think of that rhetoric and how it plays today in 2019? It ain't good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, it's hard to to take a look at it. You have to go back to the 90s and and sort of the the political situation then and how, you know, Clinton and sort of these centrist Democrats are trying to show that they're tough on crime. But there was also this sort of cultural meme, I guess, of the super predator, which I think was basically a fairly racist way to talk about how scary black kids, you know, essentially, it was high hysteria, it was racist, it was bullshit, and it led to some bad policy that people to this day are still in jail because of sort of these very, very punitive sentences that they wanted to hand out because these kids are unredeemable. Hmm. By the way, how about the guy who got shot? Hmm. And like, this is like, he was shot before. Yeah. And like, he's got like eight bullet holes yeah. or something like that. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> and the wife comes out, what are you doing? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. That was absolutely yeah. great. <laughs> Interesting soundtrack choice, though, right? <laughs> Salve Maria. Even more interesting than the In the Air Tonight soundtrack choice we heard from the dude in uh, Conviction. Conviction. From Gimlet Media. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's go around the horn like Crime Writers on panel. Do you think our listeners should check out this podcast motive? Sounds like we might be on the fence or have a split decision. I'm curious to see where we land. Thumbs up or thumbs down for motive from WBEZ. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I hate to do it, but I'm going to go thumbs down just because I feel like there's so many podcasts out there right now. I just didn't love this podcast. I felt like there was uh, an interesting premise about this this 
you know, young man having gone to jail when he was 13 and being wrongfully convicted. But then it was kind of like a lot of other stories that we've heard. I really couldn't get into it. Aside from the scene with the dancing ladies on top of the prison, um, <laughs> that was really the, the part that stood out for me. So, you know what? It's, it's not that it's horrible. It's just that I think that there's better things to listen to. And I just I really didn't get into it. What about you, Toby? Ball thumbs up or thumbs down for motive from WBEZ? I, I think Laura said exactly what I would say, which is, I, you know, I think the, the bar is so high now. Uh, there's so much good stuff out there. And there was nothing really wrong with this, but it just wasn't. You know, I just didn't find it all that interesting. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't suck. You know, I give it a thumbs down, but it's not like a horrible thumbs down. It's just sort of I, I think there's better stuff. It's a gentle thumbs down. Hmm. Exactly. What I hear to listen to this podcast is I hear a print story being turned into a podcast without the heavy influence of people who are really great at audio shaping the story for an audio audience. Like what I hear is a print story, like in the way it would be laid out as a print story. Like, here's where we are. Now let's go back. But blah, blah, blah. Because in print, like that is very often the way things are laid out. Right. Mm -hmm. I had read an amazing long form story this week in The Atlantic from Ronan Farrow's producer at NBC, who laid out this whole thing about how the Ronan Farrow Harvey Weinstein story was killed there. Beautifully written piece. Written very much like the way this podcast is, though, with like, here's where we are today. Now let's go way back and do it chronologically. Frankly, that doesn't really work in audio format. You have to do more sort of like why you are listening to this now stuff in the storytelling. I'm going to give this a mild thumbs up. Because, you know, I do think it's an interesting story and it's very competently reported. And a lot of the stuff we look for is there. I wonder about the collaboration part of it. I wonder how much the print side of it sort of overruled some of the audio decision making. It would be a lot better, I think, if the audio people had been able to take this reporting and turn it into a podcast and not just do a podcast version of the print reporting. So I'm a very mild thumbs up on this. What about you, Kevin? I am a thumbs up. You certainly can't knock them for the journalism. It's solid reporting. The characters are really good. And by characters, you know, I mean the people that we're interviewing. As we explained in previous week's right. episode. Yeah, they're colorful. They get all the right people. They even do the walking TikTok with, you know, the other kid, now an adult in this. The only thing I'd say is it doesn't really sing. It doesn't seem like something that stands out, in part because I don't think this story so far has any surprise or suspense. And I think that's sort of missing from the audience perspective, the thing that the audience wants to keep the narrative going to make a story interesting. It's either surprise or suspense. And it just doesn't have that because it's sort of this retrospective of this crime. But I still think that it has room to get better in, in later episodes because it hasn't told the whole story yet. Right. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. Of the week. These dogs have fleas. What do you mean? F-L-E-E-S, that is. A pun. The trouble was just beginning for Jen Mignard of Billings, Montana, when she tumbled off her dog sled. She was prepping her four-dog team for a mushing competition and was working on her gi and ha. That means left and right, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the sport. 
That's when the sled tipped over and her doggos kept on going. Jim put an APB out for the sled on Facebook. She posted, quote, They're hard to miss. Four dogs attached to a sled with a bright red bag. (laughs) That's when she heard from a friend that two police cars were pursuing the sled on a slow speed chase. It's not clear. Pull over. It's not clear how the cops were able to stop the getaway vehicle. Maybe a roadblock, maybe spike strips, or maybe milk bones. While the whole team should take responsibility is obviously the lead dog who kept the chase going. Now we know the answer to the question, who's a bad doggy? <laughs> so, Palin, here's my question for you. The law eventually caught up to these dogs, but where were they headed in such a rush? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. I have no idea. I'm going to say, though, if it was my dog, Buddy, and he took off like that, he would be chasing either a turkey or a squirrel. So um, <laughs> I think it's kind of universal with dogs. It's something like that. Toya Ball, where do you think these dogs were headed in such a rush? Slow speed chase. They must be going to their Brentwood mansion. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Toby. <laughs> I was going to say, like my dog did this morning on our walk, my very slow walk and my almost healed leg. Chasing our shadows, like took off, like ignored the squirrel, ignored the deer, ignored other people. He saw a shadow of himself. Yeah. Took off. What about you, Kev? Where yeah, these dogs kept, were going? They were like running east, so maybe <laughs> the shadow. And those dogs are running right to Daniel X house to get some of that sweet Spotify money. <laughs> I think I might Who go to the show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we should probably end the show on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker. Do we have a cat of the week this week? We have a dog that I am super excited to tell you about. Tell us about that dog, Laura Bricker. Okay, it is from Emily Porter. She doesn't have Twitter, so she submitted via Facebook. Her dog, Norman Bates, is a great choice. (laughs) It's this Halloween season, so Norman Bates is a great choice. I realized today we listened to CWO during his weekly medicated bath. He also has a flat Norman, which is a cardboard cutout I made of him that I bring to various animal rescue fundraisers I take part in, since 3D Norman is a dick and not good enough for public events. (laughs) I recently bought flat Norman to a dog wedding for charity and a dog prom for charity. So that is it, Norman Bates. And I'm thinking I would like to make like a flat Toby ball that I take around with me that I could take on adventures. Flat Toby. We legit wow. need a flat Toby. We need a cutout of Toby Ball. Let's and do it. He could Everyone be like, should have one. what would Laura do? And I'll be like, well, now, Toby, you're going to know because you're going to be with me. Oh, my God. Best idea ever. Yeah. yeah. So. Laura Bricker, if folks want to tweet to you if they're on Twitter, their cats or dogs or other animals would be Cat of the Week or want to get in touch with you to let you know where to send their gratis printout of a flat Toby, how can they find you <laughs> online? <laughs> At Lara Bricker on Twitter. And Toby Ball, people want to reach out to you and assure you that you are, in fact, three-dimensional. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and say, man, aren't you sounding more and more and more like the old Kevin Flynn every day? How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you strenuously to join the amazing Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just go to our regular Facebook page and hit join the group and answer a couple questions. And we will let you in unless you pick Kevin Flynn as your favorite crime writer. No, no, Just kidding. no. 
We'll totally let you in if you know who any of us are. Don't bright Agatha Christie. We will 100%. That's the wrong crime writer, we'll, you fool. We'll 100% let you in. I just want to make a quick plug here in the credits, Kevin. Do you mind? Your show. A lot of podcasts out there, like gaming the review system. We actually could use some real good reviews from our fans. Please leave a review for this podcast if you love it. It would really help us climb up those true crime charts. It is our life's goal, especially if we want to sell out to Spotify at some point in the future. No, just kidding. That's not going to happen. But leave us a review on iTunes if you can. We really appreciate it. The theme song for this show was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where I think all my most ungenerous thoughts about my fellow crime writers. On behalf of everyone at Partners in Crime Media and Crime Writers On, thanks for listening. We will catch you later. later. Um. Oh my God, you guys tell me you want a divorce. <laughs> Wouldn't that be such a fucked up thing to do? Hey, babe, so I know we're about to podcast. This isn't working for me. <laughs> I don't think I can do this. I've fallen out of love with you. Yeah. Mm. I have to bring you up more. Who's going to get the business? There is no business. <laughs> we are the business. We are? Both of us? We don't have a business. We are a business. If we broke up and we had to start two parallel podcasting companies. No one would listen. <laughs> Everybody would follow you. It would be like Matt Lieber and Alex Bloomberg. <laughs> Matt Lieber has all the brains. But Alex knows how to edit a fucking podcast. <laughs> it's not a feelings factory, Kevin. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. <laughs> What's the most ungenerous thought you've ever had about me? <laughs> Never mind. I like ungenerous. I love that. I love it too. I think we should ask Toby and Laura that question. What do you think? Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.